This is lecture number 30 on the Major Prophets by Robert Pinoy of Biblical Theological Seminary. Lecture number 30 of the Major Prophets, which is his sixth lecture on Ezekiel. This is the final lecture by Robert Pinoy on the Major Prophets. Let's go to number two on our outline, which I've labeled Suggestions Concerning the Interpretation of Ezekiel Chapters 40 to 48. We've gotten an idea of the big picture of these nine chapters. And the question is, what are they all about? What's the major point? You have a continuous picture of a visionary city and a visionary temple, and this visionary situation in which a river flows out of the temple and brings healing and food to many, but not completely because the marshes still remain salty. Then there's a vision of the division of the land among the people and the tribes of Israel. Now, I think it's clear that God is giving Ezekiel and the people of his day a picture of the future. Not necessarily a clear picture, mind you, not necessarily something easily understood, but at least something. This vision is important as something that would give encouragement and hope for the future. Remember, they are in exile. Jerusalem has been destroyed. They could tend to be very despondent and despairing, and yet, here's this visionary picture of something that God is going to do in the future. So, there's hope for the future for the people of Israel. Now, the basic question is, is Ezekiel trying to say that in a very literal, physical sense, Jerusalem is going to look like this in the future? Or is this a symbolic picture which says in symbolic language that God is going to continue to work with his people, that he's not finished with his people as yet, that he has not failed even though Israel is going into captivity? I think in the favor of the literal view are the many exact dimensions given of the temple. There are an awful lot of details and specific references. There are exact dimensions. There are references given to duties of Levites and priests. There are sacrifices. Those kinds of details seem to favor something that is going to happen in a literal way in the future. If that is the case, it would seem to be a picture then of something that would take place in the millennium because certainly this was not something that was realized in the post-exilic return. The building of the temple after the return from exile certainly didn't measure up to the picture here in Ezekiel. I will not qualify that at this point, but come back to this later. It's not something that was really realized in the post-exilic return. Yet someone like J. Barton Payne says this is not a prediction, but it's an injunction or instruction to the return from exile, and that the return from exile just didn't live up to what they were supposed to do. Payne's view is not that this is a picture of what's going to happen in the millennium in a literal way, but it's a picture of what should have happened in the return from exile, but it didn't happen. I'll come back to that later, too. But if this is not a picture of a literal temple that will take place in the millennial period, but rather a symbolic picture of things that would give Israel hope for the future, I don't think that that would disprove millennial teaching in the sense that there are other passages that speak quite literally of a millennial period and Israel's return to the land. Whether or not this passage does it doesn't really affect the general biblical teaching about the existence of a future millennial period.
I think it is also possible that you could use the analogy here of mountain ranges in the distance. What Ezekiel may be depicting here is something that, in a symbolic way, blends the future together where there may be intervals of time in between, but all sort of blended into one picture. In other words, Ezekiel may be describing something of the spiritual blessings that God is going to bring to pass, whether in the church, millennium, or the eternal state. God is going to continue to work with his people. He is going to dwell in the midst of his people, and he's going to do that in the church. He's going to do that in the millennial period, and he's going to do that in the eternal state. Of course, it will be in slightly different ways, but all of that is brought together perhaps in this composite, symbolic picture of God's future work with his people. So, it seems to me that there are three general ways of viewing this section. You could say, first, it is a literal picture that is going to be fulfilled in the millennium period. That's one possibility. The second possibility is that it is a symbolic depiction of the truth that God is not through with his people. He has great purposes that he will yet accomplish for them in the future, and glimpses of that are seen here in symbolic language. So that's a symbolic view. The third approach would be that it's a vision of the future of God's people with certain aspects of it having a physical, literal meaning and certain aspects having a spiritual, symbolic meaning. It sort of combines the first two with certain aspects having a physical, literal meaning and certain aspects having a symbolic meaning. Now, those are the three possibilities. The first, the literal one, I think in favor of that view are the specific details of the temple that I've mentioned before. The problem with the literal view is the picture of the river. The river seems to favor the symbolic view. The river is an important feature, but it's hard to fit into a literal picture of Israel's worship. It seems to be more symbolic than a literal river. It seems to me a reasonable interpretation of the river is that it is a symbolic picture of life that comes from the altar and issues from the altar. I would say then it is not the blood of bulls and goats that prefigured the death of Christ. It is the influence that flows from the work of Christ on the cross. That influence began small. It was ankle deep and then it spread to Rome and within a few centuries became the religion of the empire. So its influence grew, and you see leaves for the healing of the nations, perhaps the beneficial aspects of Christian teachings. Yet the marshes still remain, so this teaching is not universal. It doesn't completely change everything, but it shows the spreading influence of the gospel message. Now, if you take that kind of approach with the river, then what about the rest of it? There you get into the problem of making an arbitrary distinction. How do you avoid that? If you're going to take some of it as symbolic and some of it as literal, how do you decide which is which? I'm not sure I have a final answer for that. But it seems to me that the approach that maybe has the most to be said for it is to allow for some of this prophecy to be literal and some to be symbolic. One should also allow, at the same time, fulfillment not just in one period, either the church, the millennium, or the eternal state, but to see the possibility of some blending of that. You have this sort of composite. 
the primary thing holding this together is that God is going to continue to work in the midst of his people. Now, the question that has already been asked. Sometimes it is said that a premillennial view of Christ's return in which this temple will be rebuilt in a literal way and sacrifices will be offered violates the finality of the sacrifice of Christ. So then, it is alleged that the premillennial teaching cannot be correct. Let me just comment on that briefly. I would say that the idea that sacrifices will be reestablished in the millennial period is primarily derived from this passage in Ezekiel. It is then primarily based on the conclusion that this passage in Ezekiel is literal for a picture of worship in the millennial period. I don't think that this is a necessary conclusion from the section of Ezekiel. I don't think it is a necessary component of the premillennial view of Christ's return. It seems to me that the millennium is clearly taught in Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37, for example, that we looked at previously, where Israel will return to the land, the king will rule over them and establish his sanctuary. But there's nothing said about reinstitution of sacrificial worship. I don't think millennial teaching rests on Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. The question is, in what way do you take Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, and how might you fit it into a premillennial view of eschatology? So, I don't think millennial teaching rests on these chapters, and whether or not they give a literal picture of sacrificial worship in the millennium, it may have nothing to do with whether or not a premillennial view of the return of Christ is a correct view. Now, look at your citations, pages 60 to 61. Look at Ellison in his book, Ezekiel, the Man and His Message. And he says, and I'm quoting him here, For those who take this section seriously as divine revelation and not merely as Ezekiel's program for the future closed in vision form, the sacrifices provide a real crux of its interpretation. Make the sacrifices symbolic, and the temple becomes symbolic too. Take the temple literally, and you have to agree that there will be animal sacrifices in the millennium. I have no difficulty in the vision of the sacrifice in a symbolic temple, for it was the guarantee to Ezekiel that the great principles of divine redemption remain good to the end of time. But I require stronger evidence that this vision, to accept, against all the weight of the New Testament evidence, that the Levitical sacrifices will be reintroduced, that's difficult. Presumably, all who regard the temple as millennial and take the sacrifices as literal would subscribe to the statement in the Schofield Bible that doubtless these offerings will be memorials. Looking back to the cross as an offering, just as under the Old Covenant, there were memorials looking forward to the cross. In either case, did the animal sacrifices have power to put away sin? Though I fully recognize their sincerity, I must beg them to realize that those who cannot follow with them are no despisers of the Scriptures. They read the book of Hebrews to mean the abolition of the Aaronic priesthood under the sacrifices is final and forever. In addition, they cannot see why, when the bread and the wine have met the symbolic needs of nearly a thousand generations of Christians, the millennium will need more. 
The king has returned, and the curse on nature has been lifted. Why should the animal creation still lay down its life? The fact is that the ultra-dispensationalist is apt so to divide up the revelation of God, but has failed to see its completeness. Above all, he fails to realize that while human response to the divine revelation may ebb and flow, the revelation itself never turns back, but always deepens. Continuing with Ellison, There will be neither less knowledge nor blessing then than now. Indeed, I find it hard to believe that it is meant seriously when I am told that our present freedom for all to worship equally in all places will be replaced by a position in which man's privilege to worship will depend and measure on his geographic relationship to an earthly Jerusalem. The suggestions of supersonic aircraft bringing pilgrims to Jerusalem, while others are sharing their worship service by television, is tragic. And that is the end of the quote from Ellison. Now, the comment about supersonic aircraft and worship by television, I don't know who made those suggestions, but undoubtedly someone has. So Ellison takes a premillennial view, but he's quite strongly opposed to viewing this as reinstitution of animal sacrifice. Now, J. Barton Payne, which is just under Ellison there in your citations, gives five proposals for interpretation. And he says that five proposed interpretations dominate current discussions. The prophet's words were, one, a prediction for the past, and they were literal. That's the position of literalism. It was simply a misjudgment on Ezekiel's part. Plans which he expected to be carried out were not. So, the first view is the critical view, and it predicts for the past to be literal, but it was not fulfilled. That would be the critical view. In other words, Ezekiel thought that this temple was going to be literally built, but it was not. So Ezekiel is in error. Continuing with pain. Number two is an injunction for the past. It's literal, but not carried out. Well, that's different than a prediction. It's not carried out. It's an injunction. Literal, but not carried out, as Payne says. An evangelical position, that is Ezekiel's command, though he reframes from stating it as a prediction, the prophet's emphasis falls upon instruction to the returnees on how to build it. So Payne's view is that this is nothing more than instructions by Ezekiel on how to build the post-exilic temple, but it was not carried out. You see the dry bones in chapter 36 was returned from exile. This is an injunction. However, the way Payne gets around the river problem is he sees the injunction as being chapters 40 to 46 for the 6th century B.C. That's what was supposed to happen. While chapters 47 and 48, where you have the vision of the river and the division of the land, he sees that as millennial. So he would divide this section up between chapter 46 and 47. For pain, chapters 47 and 48 are millennial, and chapters 40 to 46 are injunctions to those returning from exile, but they were not fulfilled. Now, the third view, according to Payne, is a prediction of the present and its figurative. In other words, this is a prediction of what's going on right now. It's symbolic, then, of the Christian church. 
He labels the prediction of the present as figurative and amillennial, or at least it is in accordance with that position. A deliberately symbolic description of the worship of the Christian church, though this approach amounts to simple allegorization. Fourth view is a prediction of the future, literal, placing it in the millennial period. A prediction of the future, literal, held by some premillennialists. This is associated with those who are looking for the rebuilding of the temple and the second coming of Christ. Though the Messiah's temple of the future, in this view, is identified with the rites of literal blood atonement that characterize Ezekiel's structure in chapter 43, verse 20, well then, Beasley Murray, another commentator, seems correct when he adds this view is challenged by the New Testament. The atonement of our Lord has nullified such sacrifices forever, and you can read that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18. Now, fifth in Paine's view is a figurative prediction of the future, the new heavens and the new earth. It's a picture of the new heavens and the new earth after the final judgment. He says this is an amillennial position, but I don't see why that equally can't be harmonized with a premillennial view. I don't think it's necessarily amillennial, although it may be often held by amillennialists. In fact, J. Oliver Buswell holds that view. He says the new heavens, the new earth are symbolical, and he's premillennial. Some see this as a prediction of the future, but still figurative. They picture the new heavens and the new earth after the final judgment to the extent that its essential truth will be embodied in the new age under forms suitable for the new Christian dispensation. And for that they look at Revelation chapter 21 to chapter 22 verse 5. But then you have Revelation chapter 21 verse 22, maintaining the absence of any temple in the new Jerusalem. In light of these objections to the latter three of the above proposals, a past interpretation deserves preference. Ezekiel himself, moreover, stated quite clearly, Show them the house, the house of Israel, the measure and the pattern, that they may keep all the ordinances thereof. And their pain is quoting from Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 10 to 11, where Ezekiel is told to show these measurements to the people. Concerning all these literal measurements that you read about in Ezekiel, Ellison exclaims, Can they possibly refer to any other time than the prophet's own? In other words, Ellison does not agree that the measurements are meant for some literal temple in the future. Well, one more quotation. Take a look at page 58 of your citations from Buswell's Systematic Theology, Volume 2. This is the J. Oliver Buswell I mentioned just a few moments ago. He says, and I'm quoting here, It's difficult to segregate the two kinds of material in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. And I end the quote. Now, in the context of where this paragraph is taken from his book, the two kinds of material are description and admonition. Now, he goes on to say, concerning description and admonition, it is difficult to segregate the two kinds of material in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. Chapter 40 is clearly part of the division of perfection. Chapter 41, verses 7 to 11, is quite definitely an exhortation addressed to Ezekiel's contemporaries. 
So you see, chapter 40 would be the description and chapter 41, admonition or exhortation. He continues, The prince of chapter 41 and 42 brings an offering for himself and for the people, but it's not the Messiah. For this would contradict Hebrews chapter 7, verses 27 to 28, and the prince is rebuked in chapters 41 to 47 and elsewhere in this section of Ezekiel's prophecy. I should, therefore, very tentatively suggest that the following portions of Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48 predict the conditions of the new heaven and the new earth. Quote. Then he lists the sections. Similarly, I suggest the following portions are addressed directly to Ezekiel's contemporaries. As I have said above, this classification of material is very tentative. There are difficulties connected with it. I should make it clear that my suggestion that the eschatological argument in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48 has to do with the new heavens and the new earth and is by no means essential to the premillennial view. It is simply a suggestion which I think is acceptable. I believe that the suggestion is harmonious with all the data found in scriptures. He continues, whether eschatological predictions of Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48 are to be fulfilled in the millennium, as the majority of premillennial Bible teachers hold, or in the new heavens and the new earth, as I have suggested, in either case, Ezekiel's prediction of the future as the establishment of a greatly magnified and glorified Levitical system of sacrifices is seen to be a problem by many Bible students. I would suggest two possible solutions to the problem, and either one of these would seem perfectly consistent with all the data at present available. One, the Levitical form of worship was instituted by the Lord as a form to be observed forever. This is indicated emphatically and repeated frequently. Yet the New Testament writers, inspired by the same Holy Spirit that gave the Levitical priesthood, they have no difficulty in teaching that the ritual law's fulfillment is in Christ. This is the main theme of the epistle of Hebrews. When we accept the blood of Christ as our atonement for sin and observe the Lord's Supper in genuine faith, we are keeping the Passover as God intended it to be kept in our day. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, where it says, Christ is our Passover. And it seems to me that it's quite consistent with understanding Ezekiel as prophesying the new heavens and the new earth, but prophesying at a time when the appropriate form of worship was the Levitical ritual, and he's given his vision in terms of that ritual. It is highly magnified and glorified. It would seem to me quite consistent to understand that just as the Passover and sin offering are fulfilled in the atonement of Christ, so is Ezekiel's predictions of the glory of the temple with all of its ordinances to be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth in terms of the immediate presence of Christ and in the perfect felicity of the community of Christ with the redeemed. In the new Jerusalem, John saw no temple, not because there was none, but because, as he says, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. Boswell continues with the second reason why literal sacrifices in a future Jerusalem are difficult to understand. And he says, 2. 
They are, that is the sacrifices, are at odds, on the other hand, with the confidence of the premillennial Bible teachers who insist that the forms of worship described by Ezekiel's vision must be literally fulfilled either in the millennium or in the new heavens and the new earth. Premillennialists generally explain that the reestablishment of Levitical ritual after the completion of the atonement of Christ and the cross of Calvary would no more contradict the fact that the atonement is completed than does our present celebration of the Lord's Supper. Those who hold to a literal reestablishment of the sacrificial system described in Ezekiel generally agree that the significance can only be a memorial and could not possibly have the significances of the sacrifices that pointed forward to the coming of Christ. As for myself, and this is Buswell, as for myself, I'm inclined to the former of these two interpretations, but I see nothing inconsistent with the latter. In other words, what Buswell is saying is that he is sympathetic to the sacrifices beginning literally in the new heavens and the new earth or in the millennium, and that would not be a contradiction of the finality of Jesus' sacrifice any more than celebrating communion is presently. But he also sees the difficulty with that in light of the Hebrews passage that talks about the finality of Jesus' atonement and the lack of need for any more blood sacrifices. I think I would share sentiments with Buswell to the extent that it seems to me that it's more likely that this sacrificial element here is symbolic rather than to be taken literally as a reinstitution of the Levitical sacrifices. But I wouldn't be dogmatic on it. Remember, Buswell says, I'm inclined to the former, but I see nothing inconsistent with the latter. If sacrifices are to be reinstituted, certainly in the sense of a memorial, they take nothing away from the efficacy of the sacrifice of Christ. It's a possibility, but Ellison says that revelation moves forward. It doesn't turn back, that is, to the Old Testament forms, and it seems to me that that is consistent with the rest of Scripture. It's a difficult question. Although Payne sees some sections there in which he lists his address to Ezekiel's contemporary, I would say the majority of dispensational premillennialists would be for a literal prediction, a future millennial period, and the reinstitution of sacrifices as memorial. I think any composite picture of the future will contain elements of the present period, and this includes the millennial period and the new heavens and the new earth. It would seem, however, that if you are going to reinstitute that function of the Levites and then of the Zadokite line of priests, that there would have to be some basis for that in Scripture. I don't know if there is anything to prohibit the rebuilding of the temple now, because I don't think the prince can be equated with the Messiah. So, where is the Messiah in a functional role as described there? You read anecdotal reports about some almost underground movements in Israel laying plans to rebuild the temple, but I don't know how much substance or credence we can put on that. I wouldn't be surprised if there are such people that would base a lot of their building and presumed building and preparation for building on this section of Ezekiel. As I mentioned before, I think the river is a huge problem to a literal interpretation, and you see what Payne does with that. He pushes chapters 47 and 48 that mention the river into the millennial period, and then he takes chapters 40 to 46, 
where you have the temple and the rituals, officers and functionaries, as contemporary with Ezekiel in the post-exilic period. You could push the river part of the vision, perhaps forward, but to me this vision seems like one continuous picture, so it's hard to know. Is that legitimate? It does go in a symbolic direction with the possibility of blending the periods of history and of God's future work together. For sure, I think it's difficult to interpret this vision. I've heard some stories about people trying to enter the East Gate, there in chapter 44, where you have the reference that the East Gate will be closed until the Prince comes. Today in Jerusalem, the East Gate, also called the Golden Gate, is still shut. Now, the NIV Study Bible note there says that it is sealed shut as a result of a later but possibly belated tradition. Thing is, you know, you can read the statement here in chapter 44 and just make the equation that the present gate is what is being described here. But remember that wall was built in the Middle Ages, that is the one that contains the Golden Gate, and is subsequent to the vision of the temple. It may be that the two really don't have anything to do with each other, that is, the closing of the eastern gate today, and what Ezekiel has predicted. Although the fact that the eastern gate is sealed, I'm not sure when it was sealed exactly, and what the reason for it was, but it may be related to this text in some way. I think you have to be careful about connecting that with what is said here in Ezekiel. Obviously, it is a different role from the present time. Well, that concludes our discussion this semester of the major prophets. This concludes Lecture 30 of Dr. Robert Bonoy's course on the major prophets. Lecture 30 of the major prophets, lecture number 6, and final lecture on Ezekiel. (laughs) 